and I'm sure whatever goals you had at the time, I mean, it's crazy to think like you blew through them all. That's safe to say. I mean, cause I, you know, the same, same has happened with me where, I mean, in Wisconsin, I, I heard about somebody who sold a hundred million dollar portfolio. It was like the biggest deal ever. Basically when I was in high school, Steve Brown, he sold some, oh, the, yeah, the private dorms. That was the yeah. deal. But he, that, that was I never, that's like a, a unimaginable amount of money. And it's crazy to think both of us have like bought that and yeah, own it. Like it's just where I would have never thought this buying this first duplex, here's where I'm at. Or when you bought the four unit, here's where we are. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19 year old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. All right, welcome back to another podcast. Today we have Gabe Horstick, a multifamily real estate investor and founder of Base 3 Development. I'm excited to bring him on. Gabe has either acquired, redeveloped, or developed 130 million of multifamily property across 50 different different assets. And he formerly was a banker at Wells Fargo and made the successful transition from a, a lender on multifamily property to an, an owner of multifamily property. So, and I guess not just multifamily, we've also got some office and other deals in there too, which we'll get into, but absolutely. So excited to have you on. Thanks for being on, Gabe. Yeah, super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So my name is Gabe Horstick. I'm founder of Base 3 Development, a Chicago-based development company. Prior to Base 3 Development, I co-founded Campbell Street Asset Management, which under my leadership grew to over $100 million of assets owned and managed here and mostly in the city of Chicago. And as you mentioned, prior to that, I worked in, in the corporate world at Wells Fargo Bank. So I've, I've had a really interesting run and excited about the future and happy to talk about the past. So let's go back maybe to wherever the beginning is. So where did kind of your event adventure here in real estate get started? Well, we could go back really far. As far as when I was 12 years old, I actually wrote in my, my sixth grade yearbook what I wanted to be when I was 20 years later at the age of 32. And I was one of the only people that wrote they wanted to be a real estate developer. In wow. fact, I even said how many units I would have or what I was building with some level of detail. So I knew I wanted to do this from a very early age. How did you even know that? Okay, I probably didn't know what a real estate developer was until I was 19. Like I didn't, it's like going to college. How, did, how do you even know to look into this? So it's funny, I'm, I'm very close with my dad. He's someone I admire and, and respect and, and love. He was a businessman for most of his career, and he would always give me clippings from the Wall Street Journal. Nice. And one clipping I remember was that he, it was in the Wall Street Journal, there was a developer who was sitting out a market downturn, and he said it was a bad time to buy, and so he was focusing on his car collection. Wow. And I thought that was kind of cool. And, and then also, he, he had me building things as a kid. I was always playing with power tools. We built a clubhouse in our backyard, and I always liked the idea of something tangible that you could build. So Nice. Do you know who that developer was? The developer that I worked for. Oh, no, in this article. Oh, I don't know off the top okay. of my head. No, we got, okay. But he collected Rolls Royce. <clears throat> okay, nice. Yeah, no, this. Cool. I mean, this is early 90s. But. Nice. So then you said you worked initially for a developer somewhere? So uh, when I was 18, starting, starting college, I actually worked for a local home builder uh, in the Wisconsin, Southeast Waukesha area, a guy named uh, Gilmore. Uh, construction, Gilder, Gilmore Builders. And I actually worked as a bricklayer. I was a carpenter. 
I was a painter. I was a landscaper and I even, you know, got to wax the guy's boat. So yeah, I, uh, I would work cleaning up job sites and sort of funny. I actually got carpal tunnel within the first three months of working this job. These are all hard jobs. The ones you mentioned, or it's like, there's yeah. an easy one in there. Even, it was even, crazy. We'd be, I'd be pushing a 300 pound wheelbarrow. I'd be driving, you know, backhoes yeah. and other things. So it was, it was really a great place though, to understand the hands-on aspect of what it means to be a builder and be in the yeah. construction business. Is, as a home nice. So, so that was uh, that was a great experience. And then, like yourself, and that's how we really connected. I went to UW Madison, where I got a degree in real estate and finance. So nice. And then I know you got your real estate license at some point in there. It's nice you mentioned that. That was actually my early intro into being in real estate. At, at 19, I got my real estate license in Wisconsin. And so while I was at UW Madison, I actually hustled uh, nights and weekends selling condos and houses. And I actually worked for a local developer who was my mentor and, and very good friend. And we're still very close friends to this this day. In fact, it's it's great. I'm very proud to say I'm actually a mentor to his son. Nice. So I'm helping with their their family business in Madison still to an extent. Nice. So how would you find the clients then? So, okay, as a teenager, you know, that seems like it'd be hard to find clients. You're not in like a yeah, professional that, circle. That's actually a great question. So I worked for this developer and unfortunately I didn't get to sell any of his projects or properties, but I met friends that were graduating from UW Madison and taking professional jobs in, oh, nice. in Madison. Yeah. So, I mean, we're not talking, you know, massive sales volume, but enough to, you know, help pay for my first apartment in Chicago. And but, then, but actually, yeah. that's impressive that they would hire you for that. Rely well, on they you didn't know anyone they, else, or or they thought you knew what you were doing. It was sort of a, a fake it till you make it moment. But actually, interesting side story is that I grew up in Wisconsin, like yourself, and we had a family farm in the Oconomowoc area. Nice. And it was a farm that my, my grandparents bought for my grandfather and my grandmother's retirement. And my grandmother had passed away years prior to me getting my real estate license. But I knew that this was a property that had to be sold at some point. And in, in around 05, during the home building boom, I actually was able to secure what ended up being a multi-million dollar listing for this family yeah. farm. And Ultimately sold it to a, a local home builder who closed on the land in 2008, wow. two weeks prior to the, the collapse of Lehman. So it was a very thing and, and somewhat frightening time. But that, that was really how I got in at an early age. And I, I recommend it to your viewers or whoever's watching this because it's really just paying a fee and taking a class. And any, I mean, anyone can basically do it. And there's very low barriers to entry. And even when I first, you know, got my corporate job after school, I would be selling properties on the side just to make extra money and have extra money to then invest in real estate. And so, then you're, you're in the game. And so what, so, okay, we went to UW Madison, then you, you already have your real estate license. And then your first job was the Wells Fargo one? Yes. Yes. That's correct. So it's funny. I, I never envisioned being a banker. I always wanted to be a real estate developer. But on good advice from some of the people I've worked with at Madison in the development world, I was told that this would be a great way to sharpen my financial yeah. acumen and get really good exposure to commercial real estate. So I moved here in 2006, here being Chicago, and took a job as an analyst and you know gradually worked my way up to being a loan officer. What I enjoyed most about that bank was I made some of my best friends in that, that job and that corporate environment, many of which I'm still really close with to this date. And then also, I had a lot of really cool clients, a lot of middle market real estate developers who were doing their own one to $20 million deals. And a lot of these people were impressed by my, my active 
role and starting to buy my own properties yeah. at an early age. I would so, be today where that's that's really uh, differentiated or makes you, you know, unique to a lot of the bankers I'd be talking to. Well, and, and so a lot of the clients actually at the bank became close friends of mine and were able to refer people and trades. So to the extent I, I wanted to buy my own property, I had people I could go to and say, hey, you were successful. How did you do it? Where did you start? What was your first building? And and that's something that now that I'm a little more senior in my career, I, I love doing for other young people to get them excited about yeah. the business. So what would you say was one of the main things that you, you learned at Wells Fargo then? Really, it was just a general understanding of how debt worked and what level of leverage could be provided and how much equity was needed and really being a good risk manager. And that's something that I've really taken with me from my, my banking days is being a good manager of risk because as you grow a real estate portfolio, you, you really are a risk manager. And right. so I think being somewhat conservative and understanding your downside, which is something that's very commonly discussed at the bank. And understanding leverage, exposure, and what is the worst possible case, because I worked through really the worst of financial right. times in 08, 9, 10, when the, the financial downturn happened. I was going to ask the next thing, what exactly years were these? Because like 2007-ish. Yeah, that's correct. So I started my year, my banking career at Wells Fargo in 2006, and it was a great time to be at the bank. You know, we were lending at the time. I remember we had a, a retail developer, and we would we were financing a $4 million Walgreens with $100,000 down that wow. he could then potentially sell for $5 million. So, and a lot of those, those properties had very little equity, very little, you know, sponsorship skin in the game, as we say in the business. Right. And uh, lo and behold, Walgreens hit pause on their expansion and we had land and that we had loans on with really no exit strategy. So what it also taught me too, is that is, is you take risk as a developer or an investor in real estate, as long as you are willing to work with your creditor to solve a problem or work through something difficult and really can stand tall and, and figure out a problem, it's very uncommon to, to go through total financial hell. I mean, banks do not want to take the property. And so th that's the funny thing was my time at the bank seeing workout situations yeah. where projects didn't work out and seeing what people did and what their profile was as a borrower and then basically being able to say, all right, that didn't work. That put them in financial straits. And actually, one of the biggest takeaways that I received from my time in banking was that the people who got outside of their lane and started doing other sorts of deals were those who got the worst hurt. And specifically, I had a lot of clients that were multifamily investors throughout Chicagoland, mostly. And the guys that stayed in multifamily but ventured into condominium and for sale, where you have to count on certain things happening. Right. Those were the guys that took a major hit, and the ones that survived were the guys that maintained a stable multifamily portfolio. So that was uh, that was a really big takeaway from being at the bank. So then, was that more about why multifamily is great? Let's say that lesson, or really more why specialize and stay in your lane? I think it's certainly a combination of the two, but I would say that multifamily continues to be the favored investment because financing is readily available and equity is, is shockingly readily available. Right. One thing I do want to point out that we were talking about earlier is that working in a corporate environment was a great way to start my career because I, I was able to have income, which was important, but also I had some spare time on my hands. And so it was during that time frame that I was able to go outside of the corporate world and begin dabbling as an entrepreneur, like I said, selling properties on the sides. And you know, I like to joke that, well, I was 
you know, buying my first property in Chicagoland and doing all the work myself while my friends were watching college football. And it, it really, what's most exciting about real estate is you can really get out what you put in and no one's ever going to say you can only own so much right. or you can only make so much. You really dictate your own success. And at the end of the day, you're the only person you can look at if, if you have a lot of it or, or very little. So no, that's good. And that's an interesting memory then in terms of missing college football and other stuff. Cause I've, I got similar stuff where even when the Cubs were in the World Series, I was dealing with the emergency of the property owned in Madison. Oh, okay. but I, didn't, I don't think I saw a game of it almost because we had a, a a shower mixer just leak into the wall. Oh, jeez. You know, across the hundreds. That, that happened. That, anyways, and then we were, you know, for that that deal, we're self-performing the work just because that's, we didn't, we didn't have, it was the only property up there. Yeah. So that. Just me and me and my dad putting that wall back together. That's amazing. So, but family any, business. But anyways, the that's 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 interesting to to hear. So then, what did you? It was kind of your first. So you're doing stuff. Let's say nights and weekends while you're working at Wells Fargo. But what what specifically did you do? You were, no, that, that's a great question. So it's funny when I moved to Chicago at the age of 21, going on 22, with the the bright dream of being a real estate investor. I was constantly scouring for properties, and I didn't realize that it could be as easy to buy a big property as as much as a small property. So after literally looking for about a year and almost losing hope, uh, I stumbled across a property that was off market in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. And a good college friend and I, a guy I actually met at Madison in class, yeah. really great guy. We're still close friends to this day. We scraped our money together and we bought this this little four flat and did all the work ourselves and cleaned up the units, you know, put some paint on it. And it was a, it was a very mismanaged, undervalued property, and so we bought it off market. And what I remember most was paying, you know, a certain price for it, and then getting an appraisal back that was immediately thirty thousand dollars more than what we'd paid. Wow. So it was at that moment that that I realized that just by closing on this deal, just by taking ownership, I made thirty thousand dollars. I started comparing that to the toil of having a corporate job, and you know, the light bulb went on. I don't think the light bulb was frankly bright enough at the time. But what was interesting about that property is my friend and I actually planned on each living in one of the apartments. And we had a real basic Excel model that basically said, okay, if we buy this building for this amount of money and we put down around 20%, what will our cash flow be and what's our yield on equity? And it looked like it was around 8%. And not even knowing about thinking about vacancy and all the other intricacies of underwriting it, it said, you know what? 8% feels really good with surety and we're getting a hard asset and we can live here. So there's actual value where were you under, were you underwriting appreciation or anything in here? No, it hadn't even, I'll tell you why I started laughing because the same thing that I did on my first deal, I say the same thing to everyone when they're like, what should I do for syndicating and this and that and all this complicated stuff. And I I always say the same thing. There's so much going on. Like just try to figure out your monthly cash flow and really be confident in that know your rents in your expenses and that's may, might be all you'd be able to focus on in your first deal like the price you're paying this is complicated to value of building or how to how to do everything and close it just right so my first deal all my math was this seems like a good buy and i'm making it's a two hundred twenty thousand dollar house i'm making two hundred dollars a month and i can live in it included in that so oh, i guess brilliant. worst case i will move out eventually and that room's probably worth like four or five hundred bucks and i'll make 600 bucks a month or less and just hold it if I overpay and screw up. So that's actually, I'm shocked kind of that's your answer. Cause that is the yeah. same thing I was thinking where funny? There's, otherwise you would have been looking and underwriting deals for the next three years. You well, gotta... and, and that's, that's a funny point is that another thing that stood out to me when I was evaluating buying that property was 
can I live with having this money tied up indefinitely? Because real estate is inherently illiquid and you can't control getting out of yeah. it. You can really only control getting into it when you buy it. And so for that particular property, I basically made the decision that can I live with making 8% on whatever my down payment was? And the answer was yes. Now, what was really interesting about that property that has become a recurring theme in my career and my business strategy was that we essentially bought something that was undervalued and mismanaged that needed a little bit of work. It was a great first property because it wasn't a gut. It wasn't in court yeah. and have major, major issues. It was literally, let's go in and give it a nice coat of paint, put some landscaping in front, do some new pavers in back, fix the deck. But that was pretty much it. And it was interesting. Within six months of buying it, we reappraised the property and it had increased by approximately 15 to 20%. Wow. And so at that time, we were able to take a loan. And I'm going to just use hypothetical numbers, but let's say hypothetically, we bought the building for $800,000 and within 12 months, it appraised for almost a million dollars. We were then able to lever up, meaning increase the debt to the incrementally higher appraised value. Right. And what I actually find interesting is I, I go out and raise money and do other projects is that most people don't understand when you have that capital event, it's actually tax-free. Right. So you're monetizing appreciation tax-free. And that's the, the key to really building wealth in real estate. And so with this particular property, which it's now about 13 years later, I actually still own it. And I kid you not, this is sort of funny. I've refinanced this property at least six times, wow. three every time. And and that's that's the power of the long, long-term investment strategy. And I say this to the young people I mentor and am trying to help get their start in the business. I basically say... You know, if you buy a property in your early 20s, you're going to blink and you're going to be an old guy like me in his late 30s. And so it's the power of compounding. I mean, that building I was referencing is my first property. When I bought it, the units were rented for $1,200 a month for a two-bed, one-bath, which sounds incredibly inexpensive for Lakeview, Chicago. Within 12 months, we had bumped the rents up to market of around 1500 And since that time, I've done more extensive renovation, and I'm renting that unit for about $2,700. Wow. And no one knows what the future may hold. No one knows with inflation and other, you know, different factors at play that maybe 2700 today could look really cheap in 10 years and maybe it's 3500 But right. at that time, maybe the cup of Starbucks coffee you're drinking for three bucks is seven bucks and the average worker isn't making 50 grand. They're making 110. And that's just the big picture of inflation and it is inevitable. And that's why I, I continue to be a big believer in this. So, and it's interesting. I mean, on those, on these multifamily deals that you can, you reset your rates every year in, in terms of the rental rate and your, uh, some of your biggest costs are relatively fixed, you know, where you're like, you're locking in your debt, you know, typically we're using fixed rate interest. I know you are too, you know, fixed rate loans. And so you've locked in your biggest cost. And if you have rates, everything starts running up, you're going to have a big, Obviously, your expenses increase too, your operating expenses, but that's a smaller number than your rent. Absolutely. Well, and another thing I'd point out too is a major risk mitigant in buying property in a big city in desirable areas is that there's a really deep renter pool. And so, you know, the building I just mentioned, it's a smaller building. It's a, it was a great starter building, but in over 170 months of ownership, I think I've only had about three months of vacancy. Wow. And so the other thing on that note is that even if rents take a hit in a major city, in a good area with a presentable building that has decent curb appeal, you will find a renter. You'll yeah. get bodies in there. And actually, it was funny on that first deal because we managed it so closely. 
we went so far as to find random roommates on Craigslist and put them in a, oh, really? in a coach house to just get a bigger rent and a bigger yeah. revenue. Easy to do on your first deal, but hard to do as you scale up a business. So yeah, we've it, done we did that early on too with some like a, like a winter lease. So like the rents are down seasonally here, let's say in, in the Midwest. Like so we we on a deal where we had rented all the units at the rents we wanted to hit, and then uh-huh. we got stuck with like a November rental. Oh, so great. we yeah. went on Craigslist and found three guys and then each they rented a room for six months april they're all happy to go because they it was like everyone was sort of moving to chicago mm-hmm. so they were actually they were happy with this arrangement oh, like 100%. and then we raised we've charged full market price in may did our refi same story you're talking about so that it's funny we're doing a lot of the same stuff well and it's fun you have to be nimble and you have to be creative and you have to be willing to go through some yeah. strange situations yeah. finding random people off the street <laughs> to live together so i can't believe i did that but when i was 24 25 and i had to make make the mortgage i did what i had to do within reason and it was it was sort of funny just being you know creative and saying hey there's real value here as as a person moving to chicago and i can speak firsthand i remember when i moved here a nice apartment for a one bedroom was 1300 a month and then if you had a two bedroom it was 1500 a month 1600 a month right. we'll divide that by two and there's clearly value there so that was that was an interesting pivot at, at that point of my career. But so, I mean, it really all started with that first building, which it's sort of funny after owning it 13 years, the city just passed an ordinance that allows me to add even another unit to it. So I'm going to make that building a four unit into a five unit. And in doing so, my rents are probably around 250% higher than when I bought it. So wow. it's funny just finding more ways to add yeah. value and just be creative and be nimble. But and do you, for the, the cash out refinance being tax-free, do you have any, how, how do you typically explain that to just, let's say the average investor or person? I've got an analogy I'll give if you know that you that's or... a great question. Uh, I'd like to use dollar examples. So for instance, just saying, you know, there's a price appreciation that's often not captured when you look at just yield or if you're looking at yield, but not looking at the exit and the IRR and the equity multiple. And so I would basically just say, hey, we, we buy a building and we run essentially a conveyor belt where we're buying something that needs work. Let's say we pay, you know, a million dollars for it and we put 200 grand in it. And if we're doing our job well, there's at least a 15 to 20% value margin, meaning that for every million dollars of investment, we're creating a value that's worth a million too. So we're adding value and we're adding value by doing renovation and increasing rents, or we're adding value by underpaying for something and turning around management, but we're basically creating incremental value. So in my scenario of buying something for a million, putting a million two into it, and then for instance, getting it to appraise for a million five, we can then monetize that value. And I would normally just draw out like a a bar that says, this is the value. These are the amounts. And then say, well, we can monetize that value tax-free by now lending against, taking a loan out against 75 to 80% of the marginal increase value, which in that case, 80% on a million five would be, um, I think it's a million two. I'm a smart um, guy. There we go. No, some of these, it's funny. The these human incremental, everyone. No, the incremental stuff is yeah. like that. If you were said a million five, five, I don't know, but these brown yeah. numbers is so we actually do the same math all the time. Well, and so what's really interesting is in that scenario where if you buy a building for a million dollars, you put 200 grand into it and you get it to appraise for a million five and you can now put a loan on it for 80% of a million five, right. you can essentially have a property with no original equity in it. Yeah. And you're basically playing with the house money. You're, right. you're, you're basically using debt as your equity and then you're able to recuperate all your equity and roll on to the next project. So that's 
that's what is in my mind the most exciting thing about real estate is even if you can't have that value increase day one, maybe in five years the loan comes up and right. you revisit the property and maybe it's not worth a million five, maybe it's worth two million. And now you can put a loan on it for a million five to a million six. And not only do you have your original principal back, but you have additional equity out beyond your costs. And right. so I've had a multiple instances in my career where I've financed a hundred to 150% of my project costs. The sooner we can do that, the better. But in the long run, when you're a long-term horizon investor, that that is a real possibility. Download our 100-plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. Now back to the show. So in, in summary, what's so interesting about increasing your debt on a property is you're able to have a tax-free capital event, which is... You know, it's sort of funny. I have some extremely sophisticated investors and people I've worked with. And you know, when I've given them a distribution check and said, here's your original principal returned in full, they basically said, well, what's the tax implication? Right. Which I said, there is none. And that's why we're in this business. It's incredibly tax efficient. And you're able to see an appreciation on a value, monetize it by increasing your loan and basically take that capital out and redeploy it. And so it's it's funny as I look at my original first early on deals, probably the first 15 or 20, I, I think I'm basically playing all with, with financing, with non-recourse agency debt and pretty much have returned 100% of the capital. So It's a great strategy to build your portfolio. And one, you know, what's interesting too, I think that's different and we should point out with, let's say, a multifamily rental property compared to, let's say, borrowing more money against your single family house or something that you own, on all these deals to support the higher price, you've done something to increase the value by increasing the rents. So now the rents are higher, the income of the property is higher, and it can support this higher loan payment. So in a lot of instances, let's say in that first deal you're talking about, it had an 8% cash on cash, then you increase the rents a lot, did a refi, maybe then at that point, the cash on cash went back to eight, but now you've pulled out all your money. So it's a really compelling you know, option if that's how you want to go about building your portfolio, you know, we're both younger guys. So this is a, you know, a good option for us. And then, you know, when a lot of older investors, they're more at a point where they, well, they refi when rates drop, but they don't want to pull out money. They're trying to pay debt yeah. down. So this is a great strategy for building your portfolio though, and, and really minimize taxes. Cause right. You can, you created the value on that first four unit, you refi money out, you can go buy a second deal with that money if you want, and you still own the first one. There's no tax. So that's a great explanation. And one way what I was getting at was if you had any analogies about how to explain it. And one, what I've started doing to explain to just, let's say just a non-real estate investor, how it works. Like you have, you have a car. This is the analogy, right? Whether you own money, owe money on that car or not, like just imagine you do, mm -hmm. but you could, could have borrowed more and you decided I want to borrow more now. There's no tax on that. Like you just took out a lot larger loan on your car, pay off the original loan. And that's, you know, you just borrowed more money. Why would there be tax on that? That's what we're doing. The only thing that's crazy is the renter is paying the mortgage, basically. Yeah. So you you can just have the money, and it's not like a car where it's dropping in value. These are going up in value. So that that's how I've explained to a few people who don't, who's like a totally foreign thing. You know, it's 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 and the other thing that's if you redeploy that money that you pulled out in the loan into another investment of some sort, you can also deduct the higher interest. So you you're able to you know, actually reduce your taxes in yeah, this because you have a higher deduction. On all sides. So no, interesting. The first, so in that first deal, the how long, so you're working at Wells Fargo, you bought the first four unit. 
how long, you know, since you bought 50 buildings. So I know there's more, more deals here. When was the next deal? How'd that work? So the next deal was interesting. It was actually the same owner that sold me the first building. She had a building nice. next door, same thing. And I didn't know her. I did, I actually bought the first one through a broker. So I just wrote, wrote up a purchase and sale agreement, mailed it to her. And next thing you know, I get a, get an email back that she's interested and wow. maybe she'd sell that one too. And what I realized that was, it was sort of a funny way of almost playing Monopoly and acquiring two properties, getting operational efficiencies, and then actually ultimately being able to wrap those into a single loan with a bigger dollar amount. Oh, nice. And, you know, theoretically down the road, I think there's more value in a portfolio. But I'm, I'm glad I hung on. And then, you know, as I mentioned, it's sort of funny, these same buildings, a new ordinance was introduced by the city of Chicago that allows you to add units. So right. I'm adding units to both of them. And when I do that, I'll be able to increase my rent by another 30%. And so the math there, I've actually done this before. So I, I bought these two buildings. And then it's funny, I bought a building in East Lakeview. It was a really spectacular deal. And this one really allowed me. And this was all while I was working a corporate job. Yeah. You know, I'd like to jokingly say 40 hours a week. Yeah. It was that. And I was working. Yeah, banker's putting, hours. You know, putting in real-time banker hours. But, uh, you know, I, I moved on. And it's funny, I, I found a major return in adding units to existing yeah. buildings and so funny story my third building i bought and this was in 2012 so it was at year four of my corporate job i actually bought a four unit graystone in east lakeview right by lake michigan and i'll just talk rough numbers because it is actually interesting to take note and i don't want to get super into the weeds and details of the numbers yeah. but I basically bought a four-unit building, Greystone, for a little under $600,000. And what's interesting is because I was actually representing myself as, as the broker, it was, you know, call it $580,000 purchase price, but I received a 2.5% commission. So I needed to, at the time, put down around one hundred twenty grand, but I had a 2% commission. So I wasn't putting down one hundred twenty grand. I was actually putting down more like ninety five. Nice. So fast forward, this building, I you know, borrowed some money and I updated the units and I put in a, maybe another $150,000. And I subsequently actually had the, the building value at a million three. So I was all in on this property for around 950,000, a million dollars. I'm, I'm sorry, actually, no, I was in for around 750 and I got yeah. an appraised for a million three. So basically in equity, I'd created a million three less my costs. And I was able to refinance it, take 100% of my original investment out, plus another 20%. So yeah. let's say I started with 115 grand in, I put another 100, $150,000 rehab costs. So I had a total all in of 250. I was actually able to cash out something like $400,000. Wow. Now it doesn't end there. In 2015, or perhaps it was 2016, I found some obscure city record that actually said that you didn't actually buy a four unit, you bought a six unit. So I found a very intelligent architect who was able to check the files of the city. And she basically said, you know what? This is a six unit. The wow. reason being that this building was at one point a boarding house and there was some obscure city record actually said it was a six unit. So that was my time to take another bite of the apple. And I got plans and permits in place to add another two units wow. to an already lucrative deal. And so I spent another $150,000 per unit to add two additional units that in the Lakeview market are worth approximately $300,000 yeah. a unit. So by spending $300,000, I was able to increase the incremental value of the building by $600,000. Right. And in summary, I was able to get the building reappraised 
for around $2 million with an all-in basis of around a million one, a million one fifty, wow. and put a loan on that particular asset, you know, at like a million three, five, a million four. Wow. And this is again, after having already refinanced yeah. multiple, 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 multiple times. And so it's just sort of funny. I look at, I look at starting out and I look at advice I give to, to young people and the biggest piece of advice I would give is to be patient and find a really good deal for the first one. And if you find something you like, beg, borrow, steal, put as much of your own resources in it as you can, because if it's successful, you're going to want to enjoy the fruits of that. Yeah. And so it's funny on this building, I had the opportunity to bring in a partner and I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't because yeah. it, was, it was like an 11% unlevered return. <laughs> and these are, as you know, very hard to find. And so now going forward, doing bigger projects, it's not always practical just to use your own resources. But it was funny that literally one building allowed me to replicate my whole corporate salary and well, then some. And that that was when I really felt truly comfortable leaving my corporate job. But again, this was all sort of a funny nights and weekend thing for me. It's fun. It's crazy hearing this because then as you're describing this third deal, I'm thinking to myself, Wells Fargo was, we're, we're done with this at that point. Once once this first appraisal happened, not this thing in 2015 with the two oh, years, yeah. but once this first deal hits and now this is worth a million three, I'm in for... 750 where yeah. wells fargo we're done with this like, that would be I the half to, a yeah, decade of I work know. at wells fargo and i did it nights and weekends on one good project right then at that point you're thinking wow what if i could do like one of these a year this well that's, crazy. that's the funny thing is it's you don't have to do 10 deals in a year you focus on doing one good one and keep yourself busy you know and it's that's a funny thing as i've progressed in my own career is that a lot of it is just about finding the satisfaction of doing the projects it's yeah. less about money financial resources, just having a big portfolio and a lot more about having the fun of the chase, right? mentorship, helping other people, finding a little bit you know, of altruism to, to give back a little bit. And that's something, one of the reasons I love helping mentor young people and getting them in the business and helping my friends find, find and buy their first building yeah. and set them up with the lender and the contractor and all the resources. Because it's, it's actually just as fun to see other people do it is to to do your first deals. And it's, I get that same joy in, in helping young people. Cool. I know that I really, I agree with that. I'm getting more enjoyment at this point, seeing other people like either on the team or some get equity or it's, yeah. it's, it's happy to, it's same here. And then what's interesting too, I really feel like those first deals, it's almost like that was the most, that was the most fun. Like they yeah. don't realize what's going on in a way like this. I mean, you can speak for yourself, but almost maybe this, the seeing that, first deal happened where wait a second this is going to appraise for this much more and we you know you're not sure how it's going to pan out you're doing this light yeah. rehab on your own where you're painting the units and you're you know i mean you're the yeah. contractor not sure where this is headed and then all of a sudden it's like wait this is worth it worked 10 percent more okay <laughs> yeah, it worked and you sort of have to pinch yourself it's funny i'll never forget i had a wells fargo client and uh, sadly i met him right before he, he found out he was terminally ill but he was a very prominent and local multifamily investor who i we both took a real shining to each other because he saw what I was doing nights and weekends. And he, you know, he really was kind of impressed that I was a guy like him when he was younger with the gumption to basically say, you know what, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to just start dabbling. What's the worst that can happen? I'm, I'm going to accept that not everything will work and get comfortable with the possibility that I could fail. Because if you don't try, you'll never know. But that was one thing he said to me was that I, I wish I could go back to the early days because that was the most fun. And this was a guy who ended oh. up owning 1,500 units locally with no partners or investors, a very prominent local guy. Wow. So 
that that definitely sticks and that's something that's been you know exciting for me starting you know this new development company is you know feeling like i'm starting my own career for the second time yeah. and uh, just finding the excitement and energy of let's maybe talk about the how how what was going through your your mind more so when you had then left wells fargo so you had three deals when you quit or where were you so at? it's kind of funny i had acquired a couple of four unit buildings in lakeview one in lincoln park and one of them being a total home run that really gave me comfort to leave that I had now sort of a little bit of a cushion. But then it was funny. I actually, uh, through total happenstance, connected with a guy who became my first outside investor. And it turns out he was a neighbor and he was uh, also worked with one of my business partners. And it was sort of interesting. This guy was an amazing guy and is still a good friend to this date. And we still own a portfolio together. But I had found a six unit building, sort of funny at the time, it was $450,000 in Bucktown. Yep. And this was when the world was really bad and I was still at the bank. And I put together a basic financial model and I said, hey, you know, this is this deal. We need a whopping $200,000 of equity. I don't have it. You might. And um, why don't we come up with a structure where yeah. you can help us get off the ground, sign a note, and be the controlling partner and the investor, and we can have this really complicated structure. To which he said, okay, here's, here's what I want. I don't want all these elaborate hurdles. I want an easy, clean deal. I want to have some level of control. I'm willing to sign the note. If this is yours to run with, show me what you got. And so that was really when Campbell Street, my predecessor company, was formed by buying our first buildings on Campbell Avenue, and we subsequently bought probably you know, another seven, eight million dollars of buildings in that area. And it was funny. I think that was that was May 31st of 2013. I left the bank July of 2013. I'll never forget that day. It was yeah. a very joyful day. There was a lot of jumping in the air and fist bumping. If you know, this. but anyways, it was funny because I had acquired a portfolio with the same investor just six months after acquiring the first gut renovation project. And it actually was published in the Illinois Real Estate Journal, and it came into my Wells Fargo inbox. And so I was like, you know what? It's time. And I and I saw a very clear path, and I had you know great great partner to work with on growing Campbell Street, and that was just an amazing time of my career. Yeah. It was really at that point that I felt like it was okay just to walk away. And you know, banking was great, but a lot of it was you know it was kind of wearing on me, and I just knew in the back of my head that there's there's more out there, and I can pursue the same avenue as a number of my Wells Fargo clients. It's funny, actually, I just got looked up by one of my favorite Wells Fargo clients last week. It's a group of guys out of Evanston that turn over big multifamily deals, and they they found me online, and these guys were real mentors to me while I was at banking, and they just kept saying, "Gabe, one day." Oh, just really? keep doing your thing. And they were always willing to help me and talk to me. And I'd financed a couple of their projects. And so it was sort of funny how that worked out. But they were, my point of this actually was they, they started their career in banking. A lot of people that don't get stuck in banking end up going off and being the borrower. Right. And even it was really cool. My, I'll never forget my, my boss, my first boss at Wells Fargo, the great lady, she basically said, one day you'll be a borrower. And there was a lot of people around me that kind of believed in me. And yeah. they, they didn't take issue with me being an entrepreneur on the side because I worked hard. I got my job done. You know, I was generally a good employee minus the occasional nap under my desk. <laughs> but but it was really a great place to start. And so it was really getting to this critical mass and seeing a, a future and a pipeline and a vision to, you know, 
grow to the next step that I, I felt 100% comfortable. Oh, if you had more there, go for it. Otherwise, I was going to ask. A, no, and I would just say, and this thing. was 2013, and the world was starting to stabilize, and it was pretty obvious that we were on the on the mend. Because a, a big takeaway I have from hearing your your story, and it kind of parallels mine in terms of like, you know, I had a job as well, and I quit when I had five buildings, and so well, I yeah. actually I had five as the with with my Blackhawk partners, and then I guess I had two on my own. So I, anyways, point being like one thing that i noticed people doing where we they need to have like their whole life planned out to quit their job and know every move or they try to do something super complicated where all right i'm gonna quit and then i'm gonna do this development deal that's the first deal and what's so we've we both kind of end up doing the same thing or we got you know four or so properties under our belt we own them we're making money off them we did it nights and weekends i mean those years i'm sure it's the same it's the same for you because it's yeah. a college football thing that's all I did on most nights and weekends was work on these deals. But then, you know, three years go by doing that and you're, you're quitting your job and you're, you have something that you're already, you're already doing. It wasn't like, all right, it's going to be a cold start. I'll quit. And then I'll, I'll go on LinkedIn and it'll say like to be like coming soon for four months. Like it'll be, you know, it's already happening. Like we already, so that I think was a big, a big thing we both did to be able to quit our job. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and that's the thing. It's just people that work, and finance gets sucked in and it gets really cushy. And a lot of people in non-entrepreneurial jobs, you know, they wake up and they're in their mid thirties and they're making great money and they got a great life. But the second they leave that job, the the income stops. And so that's, what's sort of interesting about real estate, as you know, is that the goal is to just build a big enough of a portfolio that the the income is coming in when you're sleeping, when you're waking up, when you're brushing your teeth. And just getting really to that critical mass where you can then set some of your personal goals for either future growth or, you know, other things that are important, giving back, for instance, and just finding what's that right comfort point. So that's really interesting thinking of it that way. And I'm sure whatever goals you had at the time, I mean, it's crazy to think like you blew through them all. That's safe to say. I mean, because I, you know, the same, same has happened with me where I mean, in Wisconsin, I, I heard about somebody who sold a hundred million dollar portfolio it was like the biggest deal ever basically when i was in high school steve brown he sold some the, oh, yeah, the private dorms that was the yeah. deal but he that that was it never that's like a, a unimaginable amount of money and it's crazy to think both of us have like bought that and yeah, own it like it's just where i would have never thought this buying this first duplex here's where i'm at or when you bought the four unit here's where we are well, today. right. And it's it's sometimes hard to know where you'll be and where you can go and what the potential is and you know, it's funny when I think about things that give me stress in my life, actually a really good friend of mine said this to me. He's like, have 22 year old Gabe ask 37 year old Gabe what you're stressed out about and see what 22 year old Gabe says about what 37 year old Gabe is worrying about. And, you know, take a little bit of stock and how much fun you've had and how good you feel about your career and the things you've done. And it's, it's not all easy as you know, but, and that's, what's really cool. I mean, you and I grew up basically in the town next to each other. We're from small towns and, you know, it, it, we just worked hard and, you know, we have that Midwest work ethic. And, you know, I think a lot of it too comes down to doing what you enjoy and working with people you really like. And while, you know, I will say I, I love the people I worked with at the bank. Anytime you are in a big corporate setting, I know other people, not necessarily me, struggle with sometimes you, you really can't choose who you're working with. So as you go down this path, not only potentially having this financial freedom, but also having the freedom of choice of what you do, when you work, who you work with is really a pretty incredible thing. So, And one thing that I, I think would be 
interesting where I know this was the ex- experience having lived a similar thing, but Wells Fargo were part of a big system here. It's not up to you if this loan's happening. Whereas you walk over to your deal in East Lakeview, you're calling all the shots. It's like totally you're running crazy. Your, it's funny, actually, another good friend and, and investor and mentor of mine said this to me. He's like, I'd never had heard this before, but he actually flew me down to his alma mater in downstate Illinois. And I actually gave a speech to an entrepreneur class, actually a program that he had, was responsible for founding. And one thing he explained to the students that I really hadn't considered until that time is that every building you buy is its own business, its own P&L. It's got its own members. It's got its own shareholders. And you can either be the sole shareholder or you can find other shareholders and fund it in different ways. And those shareholders can be bought out. But every building, be it a house, be it a 20-unit, a 100-unit, a 500-unit complex, it's its own business. And it's got its own issues, its own P&L, and you just need to, to drive the bottom line in order to make it successful. It's interesting to hear how you describe that. I mean, that's definitely true. Every deal is its own own company. I open up a yeah, different house really for every every deal, different loan, different different stuff on each one. What about, I think let's circle back. So that first deal you had raised money on, what I heard that was interesting, and I had a similar experience where, right, I went to somebody and I explained kind of what we did at the big company I worked at, like this is a preferred return and it'll be like a multiple tier waterfall. And, you know, so then after a certain IRR, we'll be doing this and this and this. And it was, you know, I'm explaining to a guy who's, he's very smart, but he's not in like finance. Mm-hmm. So then he's same response you had. Well, let's just pick a number to split on, like not yeah. just like a straight up split. And then that way too, it's interesting. You do that. It's, you're more aligned. Like now it's not a problem if like he wanted to keep the building and you're going, wait, I'm, I'm my preferred return diluting my interest. You know, like it's not like a hundred percent. So that's interesting. You had the same experience. Cause one thing too, that I'd say, you know, it's just kind of, there's not a, there's a playbook kind of for this, but you can just figure out what works for you and your partner or investor. And then there's no one way to do it. And we've kind of both ended up in unique situations where that's what we've, we've done on a lot of deals, but it's for me and it sounds like for you, that was our investor actually driving that. Like why make this super complicated thing that is going to force us to sell in three years where you could, we could just own it as some percentage we think is fair. You get a little extra for doing the work and then we'll just keep it. Absolutely. And refis. So, no, and I, I wholeheartedly agree yeah. with that. And I, I think really the key is you start wanting to bring an outside money, which is unless you're independently wealthy, let's face it, you have to bring an outside money unless you're just hitting home runs. And those are very hard to do. You can't really pick the market timing on that. But I think the key is just demonstrating value and demonstrating trust so that people know that if they are giving you their resources that they've worked hard to earn, that those resources are safe because you're a fiduciary of the capital. And so that's really the interesting thing is that as people get more skilled in this business, it stops being about doing deals and being developer and being the most creative guy, you actually start becoming a money manager and you're, you're almost like a bond manager. You're managing yield and income. And so it's really interesting. And that's why, I mean, as I even scale bigger, bigger size projects, I, I still like doing smaller deals because yeah. they're fun and it's cool to get your hands dirty. and get- For sure. And then too, if you're able to do that with your own money primarily too, like then that's a, such a simpler execution. That it is. Yeah. Some of my favorite deals are those ones too, where it was yep. just, I bought a six unit turned it into a seven unit the killer deal wasn't much more to it but i just was a only decision rewarding. maker it was very, very fast rewarding. you just walk in there decide done don't yep. need to talk to anybody that was that was great well, let's keep talking about deals then i guess yeah. we'll 
where where would you where were you learning then? So you were doing these deals. Obviously, you learned a lot at Wells Fargo. Mm-hmm. But then, where else were you? Have you had a, a mentor in Madison? You were still talking to him. That's a really great question. Basically, we just bought our first building. My my college friend and I and just threw ourselves into the fire. But actually, it's funny looking back. I think it must have been oh eight nine around that time. You and I had started talking then, and we initially met at a networking function, and it might have even been while you were still in school, but I asked you how you were doing it and saw like a really great model for how to actually replicate this and, and go off and, and do this, and it was like, wow, that, that sounds actually pretty straightforward. And so that that's a funny thing. As I talk to people about getting in this business, find people that are doing what you want to do and ask them a lot of questions. Yeah. So at the time I asked you, I was blown away by what you had done by that point of your career. I said, how are you structuring it? How easy is this? This sounds almost too good to be true. And, and it, it was true. Yeah. So it's funny as I've helped my, some of my friends get their first loan by the first building. I basically said, here's how I did it. Here's a, a deal. Here's my pro forma on the deal. This is how it works. It's pretty simple. You're going to buy it for this. You're going to put this in. These are the assumptions. And we're going to be in at this cost. You're going to be done. And it's going to be worth this. And this is going to be your cash flow. So just demonstrating to people how it works. And as I, I might have mentioned earlier, I also had a lot of people, Wells Fargo clients who had done it. And then my my friend and mentor in Madison, where it was not as technical, but I saw what he was doing and how he managed the business and right. just found people that I could go to and ask a lot of questions. And I still, to this day, even as I'm doing bigger projects and more sophisticated fundraising, I like going to other people and asking them about their best practices because that's a great way to, to for self-improvement. And that's really what I've done too. I mean, I'm happy to have helped in any way, but the, you know, I'm, I do the same thing. I had a mentor through ULI that I got connected to. I learned a ton from mm-hmm. and still talk to him and same thing. I see people doing stuff. I'm asking tons of questions or even actually just observing what's going on, you know, like where you can kind of, see how people are doing things where even, and that's part of the reason I started the podcast. Like I see people where they, they're getting more deal flow, more passive investors, more LPs coming into their deals. And that's cause you're, you're like out there now. It's not like a, yeah. a secret. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So then I, you know, so I just, it's the same thing. I wasn't, I didn't go to like a real estate boot camp or for a week weekend. And I you know, know you didn't either where it was some course off an of infomercial or something. It wasn't that it was, we just started doing it. And then observe and ask questions from people. No, you're absolutely so correct. That, that, and then just, I guess what both got to think critically along the way and make decisions, you yep. know, that yep. that's the secret maybe, but then let's circle back to some deals. You had mentioned a office deal that you bought. Obviously I know the deal, but so West loop neighborhood, Chicago, hottest neighborhood, basically last, you know, 10 years almost. When do you want to hear about that? Absolutely. It was a little bit of a right place, right time situation, but this now goes back to 2014. One of our previous partners in my prior company was in control of a, a busted office deal in West Loop and basically needed someone to come in and do the turnaround. And so this was actually a really funny way at the time as I started my career and, and launched Campbell Street in 2012, 2013 to get started was we would basically find some of these opportunities where we could take over turnaround assets, including some multifamily on the north side of Chicago. And then this this office project in Fulton Market, which, you know, high level, uh, we'd acquired a note with a basis of around $35 a foot. And wow. in the last 24 months call, we were able to sell it somewhere in, in the mid $200 a foot range. And so now we had to put money in. It yeah. was it was five or six years of real work and sweat equity without making anything. 
but it was just, you know, having other stuff going and the ability to just kind of hang in there and, and stay the course. And actually through that same relationship, we had taken over a 19 unit building in Rogers Park that we assigned an arbitrary value because this partner had a had a mez loan then foreclosed on it of a million three. And we had used some additional resources from him and put around four hundred thousand dollars in that asset. So we were all in it somewhere in the neighborhood of a million seven, a million eight. And then actually we're able to exit that north north of three million dollars with I think we had zero down on that. It was yeah, sort of interesting. In both, in both those deals, those were properties that the lender got back on these MES loans. And then you were able to take them from right. Uh the someone throwing the keys back to them at a, a million three loan, million exactly. nine, and then and then pushing the value to over three. That's correct. And what's funny, I look back at that time and it, I'm finding myself in a similar situation where people that have these opportunities sometimes don't have the young hungry person with yeah. that is willing to you know bust their butt to make it happen and, and manage the turnaround so kind of a little bit of the right place right time but it really shown to me that you can actually do deals without having any real money down maybe without even having recourse so it's sort of interesting just the different opportunities that can come up and you just got to keep your eyes open and, and look for value that's a great great find great relationship then where you guys bringing the deal oh, and, yeah, uh, and willing to invest in it so but yeah. like you said i mean that i know i know the person you know he's you know older and doesn't want to be the one doing the rehab anymore you get to have his money work for him and then it's a great great parent well and again it's just about demonstrating value and your ability to execute and going into maybe a rough neighborhood and having comfort in that and dealing with some really hard situations some bad tenants city issues and just saying all right what doesn't kill me you know makes me stronger basically so and let's let's bring it more to the the present then. So I know you got a new deal in you know trying to not make this so specific to Chicago, but it's in on on Ashland and what neighborhood would you say it's in? I, for marketing, I like to call it Southport Corridor. Okay. It is essentially Southport Corridor. It's it's a few blocks west of Southport Avenue. So I'm very excited. I actually am doing one of the biggest deals in my career, arguably one of the scariest because it is a pretty ambitious ground up development. It's a 48 unit new construction in basically the Southport Corridor, Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. And I just acquired the land in the last couple of weeks. It's fully entitled, just waiting on my permits. And so that's been a really interesting experience because never in my career have I ever taken out a land loan without knowing that I'm immediately going to go vertical. So I have yeah. done some new construction projects, but never anywhere near this size of magnitude. And it was always, you know, not only smaller, but it was more imminently converting construction. Prior to this, the biggest deal you had, let's say, built, was it the 19 unit? It was in a, it was about a seven million dollar project. It was a new construction up in Wilmette that was uh, oh, nice. fourteen units in medical office and underground structured parking. I know the one, but we go from that to then what's the Ashland deal size? That's forty eight. Oh, and that's, then that's actually, a, that's you know, a, that's a big jump. We did another one that was interesting. We bought a building at nineteen eleven West Irving Park Road, and it was a really rundown building. It was six units and really derelict commercial. But what we liked most about this particular deal was. It had a massive empty yard in the back. And actually through our work at Fulton, we had built a relationship with the medical tenant who runs a very successful business. And they actually specifically wanted to be in North Center. So this site came on the market. We were able to negotiate a lease with them for a 10 year, 7,500 square foot space. And then I can't believe I did this. We, we acquired the property without even having the zoning in place, which is wow. very, very, very risky and frankly, 
probolo wouldn't do that again. Yeah. What were you what did you need it zoned for? It was zoned it was uh, just zoned as it, a So it was it was a dash 2 zoning, but our what made the project work was the ability to expand the building. So again, we bought on a on a 100 foot wide, 125 foot deep lot. We basically bought this building that had four rundown retail spaces and then it had six apartments above it. And so our vision for the property was to actually take the front six apartments make them into eight and then expand the building from being around 10,000 square feet to about 27,000 square feet. So we basically made an elevator corridor, I'm sorry, a hallway and an elevator corridor to the back and then built a 16 unit addition. So that required a zoning change that allowed us to take advantage of Chicago's transit oriented development ordinance. So that was something that was the first of that time. Definitely a smaller scale than, than this Ashland project. But that's a complicated deal where you didn't have the zoning in place. And then at that, I mean, it's on top of that brown line stop, but that's, you know, at that point there were TOD deals happening, but not, it wasn't not like what was coming. It was funny because even at the very end, our construction lender came through. He's a great guy. He's done 30 plus projects for, for myself and our, my group. He came through and he's like, you know, I, I didn't really understand what you were actually doing until it was done. What? But, uh, you know, I guess that'll happen on the like 10th deal or whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. Not so on the first one. He would but have. at the time, I mean, everything went <laughs> wrong. It was not a perfect deal by any stretch. You know, there were unforeseen costs. The retail space delivered late a lot of uncomfortable conversations. And in the midst of it, you know, I was not sleeping at night and it was a really stressful time. And I looked at it and I said, God, why did I do this? And now four or five years later, the tenant's still there. They've expanded into adjacent space. And I'm thinking, you know what? I don't even remember how miserable I was at the time. It It all sort of worked out. In fact, I'm closing a refinance tomorrow to drop my rate by, you know, 30% Wow, taking some money out. So Long-term, great project, but in the moment, it really, it was, it was challenging. So yeah, I'm sure the numbers on it were great. If you can build 16 or 18 units on the, what was this essentially free land in the back. Yeah, more or less, not too but bad. it was, it was just an example of thinking about things creatively and yeah. doing things differently. Cause one thing that I've noticed on your rehabs, like you, you have like a much higher end design where even for, for stuff I've rehabbed, I'm sort of just, I mean, I feel like I'm going higher end, but it's still like, I'm not trying too hard like i'm just i'm trying to get the rents where i need them and move on you've done some really really cool projects i mean so let's maybe let's talk let's talk about how you're thinking about design and and rehab so how do you approach that so it's it's interesting i've remodeled maybe i don't know over 350 400 units in my career and i started out always hiring a third-party contractor and then after having a lot of bad experiences with some contractors i had an epiphany where I said, I'm going to figure out and do it for myself. This will be fun. And it was great because it taught me a lot about construction, but it also made me realize this is not the highest and best use for my my time and resources. But what I I tried to do really starting in the last three years was create more of a brand so that the buildings I had renovated were recognizable. They were unique. They were different because there's, as you know, a lot of competition and multifamily there's a lot of cookie cutter stuff out there. And even as I'm doing some gut renovations now, and I talk to the guys doing the work on the margin, spending more on nice finishes does not cost that much more. Right. Spending 120 on a light fixture versus 80 or getting a slightly nicer tile for three bucks versus a buck 50. I mean, the labor is all the right. same. And in doing so, I've been able to capture, you know, the really high end of the market and in some cases set record rents and at the time, you know, be able to revalue those properties at, at higher appraised values 
or create an asset that's more appealing to a buyer that might be someone looking for more of an armchair investment. But I've sold one of these buildings I've done. I sold at a number I can't rationalize. It was a smaller walk-up deal that traded for basically a five cap. Like a five O. Five O. Wow. Small building, Bucktown. But the guy that came in had looked at 20 walk-ups and said, I've never seen anything yeah. like this. I want this. And it's there's there's more to investing than just money and returns. There's this certain element of I think just enjoyment and prestige from some investors buying a building that because yeah. it's cool. Not everything is about money. It right. the large part of it is about money and returns, but people want to own cool looking buildings with nice finishes. And I, I found that you can usually get a bigger return from someone that looks at something as being unique and that's interesting sort of its own its own brand its own it's just different it's just it's allowed me to have a little more creativity and just mix things up a little bit and i'm sure it's fun you know that also too there's a lot of people where they're not analytical first might be more of an emotional decision maker so if that's your tenant they'll pay up big for having the coolest unit they've ever seen or that guy or group that bought the property paid up you know, big for buying out a 5.0 cap, but you know, it sounds like it's his money. You can do what he wants and it's a yeah, cool building. Absolutely. You wanted it. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense. What, how are you going to approach the, the Ashland development deal then? Is that's going to be how high so, end you going with that? So that's a great question. You know, that that's, it's exciting because it's my first project that I would describe as being mass produced. And so I've been spending a lot of time on value engineering, design finishes. I have a wonderful team that's run by a really good friend of mine who does a lot of the design work on my existing portfolio, my past deals. And so we're trying to come up with a really creative branding and marketing program and then just put something out that's different, but not over the top such that we compromise our construction budget. And that's really actually one of the exciting things about Base 3 development is doing projects that are larger in scale gearing more towards institutional and creating a brand and a following and something that's just unique, special, and beautiful. And so with base three, I mean, the idea starting with Ashland is to incorporate, you know, technology in the future of residential living of things, integrating to your phone, smart locks, perhaps Sonos in units and things that don't cost a lot, right. but they give it that little extra edge and it shows that you're early adapting to the future of multifamily urban living. Do you have some technology specifically picked out at this point or what? You know, we're, we're going through some of the paces on, on okay. exploring those options, but smart locks are one thing that comes to mind. And so yeah. we're looking at the different options for, you know, the, the future of real estate is this little mini computer we have in our pocket, yeah. the iPhone or the Android. Have you done a demo on the latch locks? I have not. That, that I think is the coolest. Some people who quit either Apple or Google started it and it's the, it's a, it's a smart lock and it's controlled completely from your phone, but it doesn't need to be on Wi-Fi. And so how it works, let's say if you wanted to change the lock, you need to lock someone out. You can do it from your computer. And actually what it does is the app on the person you're locking out on their phone, when they get to the lock, it then makes the change when it touches the phone. So then the app would tell it, I need to lock this phone out. Wow. And so the, what's cool huh. about it is it's no Wi-Fi. So you don't have to worry about your All ability being on Wi-Fi or even whatever the near field thing. I'm not sure what wow. the technology is, but it's so that if I was doing ground up, I'd give that a look. I know retrofit is too much where, where those are installed, I think it was like 300 a lock. Uh -huh. So if you're doing, let's say a, you know, a deal where there's two locks on, you know, front and back door where this is probably just one door. Cause it's going to be a corridor. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Then that's, and you already got to put a lock in, you know? So then, then it's again, to your point, it's just a, not that big of a jump marginally. So that I'd give, I'd give that a look. 
we have a butter butterfly max intercom on yeah, we've started one of our deals yeah, that i've really really like that and i haven't had any any issues with it but it's that's only on a unit but yeah it already was installed in the building i bought so i would check out latch and i mean you know what we did on our other deals were just the more basic schlag keypad one but that's not actually a smart lock that's just a lock with the keypad but it's nice people don't want to have to grab keys when they're going but that's dog. more that's just kind of like an intermediary lock yeah. i feel like it's that's 200 bucks where if you're going to be the, the new cool building in south recorder then you go for the latch and you know have the leasing agent unlock it with their phone every time but that's oh. that'd be good yes do real estate yeah so the uh, nice so let's think about i mean what else i mean i think it's it's really interesting how you've you learned from wells fargo to specialize that's something that i heard that we didn't really specifically identify but you've you've done that too i mean you've dipped into doing the office deal and a, a few other things but really it's specialized in multifamily value add so that i you know it's interesting to hear the the whole story cuz then you know i think it's you you see a deal that comes up maybe it's the ashland development deal or whatever it is you can tell if it's a good deal or not so much yeah. quicker cuz you're not also doing like office deals in the suburbs or building yeah. hotels or other totally different stuff that is taking you away where you can tell really fast, you know, if it feels going to be good and, and then you have everything to execute it now because that's all you're doing. So, 100%. That's the interesting thing about real estate is that when I was about to buy my first building in 2008, nothing looked good because the market no, was hot. Yeah. And that could just be a sign that it's not a good time to buy or invest, but people like ourselves like to transact. And what we're seeing is that yields are falling because people need a place to put money, but we're also looking at inflation and other factors that make real estate a continued good investment. And so it's it's interesting. I mean, when I look back at when I started my career, I wouldn't do anything unless I was making an 8% on levered return. And now the norm, depending on the size of the project, is is a little over six. And we've talked a good deal about this offline that the market in the Southeast and the Southwest is like four. Yeah, you're talking about unlevered. Unlevered, I'm sorry, unlevered return. So, and unlevered yield on cost, right? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, unlevered yield on cost, correct? Like cap rate, like basically NOI over your project. So, so it's really interesting. Just, you know, and then that's another trend I see as I'm looking at buying and renovating other buildings and comparing it to building new, building a new elevator building where you might be able to build a new elevator building with land if you buy the land right for $275 to $300,000 a unit. I mean, you, Right now, buying a gut renovation project, you're lucky to buy in good areas for $200,000 a door. Great. Well, that's interesting. I mean, why don't we dive into raising capital next? I think we touched on that before. Mm -hmm. But then the first you know, the first deal you raised money on, was, was that one on Campbell? or That was the Campbell Street project with a single individual who became a, a repeat investor. Nice. And so on that first deal, what was sort of going through your your mind? What was the initial pitch? What was the structure? What was running us through that? Well, it was funny. I had only done three other smaller deals at the time, just these little four unit walk up projects and on the north side of Chicago. And so I, I had something I could show as a clear case study, but it was not my finest presentation. I had an Excel spreadsheet and a picture of the building on a Word doc, basically stating like, this is the general concept. Here's how it worked here. I think we can replicate this in the same same opportunity. And so it was funny in my mind, I had this idea that when you went out to raise money, you have to have this very complicated structure with waterfalls, preferred returns, fees, et cetera, et cetera. And so on this first project, we weren't looking to raise all the money in the world. It was about 225,000. It was a building that was only 450 grand, six unit in Bucktown, yeah. if you can believe it. It needed a lot of work, needless to say. I mean, yeah. It was basically a shell, but it's crazy to look back that that's what the world was like. And the areas, of course, now totally different. but 
on this particular project, we went to our investor with this structure of something more traditional, like a 90-10 and splits, et cetera, et cetera. And his simple response, and this is a guy that worked on Wall Street and now runs a multi-billion dollar family office out of based out of New York, really impressive guy. He basically said, let's do something really simple. I'm going to help you sign your first note and get you guys off the ground. And I'm going to put up the lion's share of the capital, but I want you guys to put in a little more money. Let's keep it super simple. Let's not overcomplicate this. I want to have a very clear, transparent way of getting this done. Align our interests, align you guys as managers and look at this as a long-term investment and you know, keep it simple. And, and I just about fell out of my chair when yeah. I heard that. And then we subsequently went on to buy five other buildings in a well, very nice. clean, simple structure that was super fair. And out of those buildings, I mean, now literally almost 10 years later, we've refinanced most of them to you know, over 125% loan to cost and made our investor whole. And it all just worked out. So I was surprised that just keeping it simple was really the way to go. I've had a similar experience where, you know, I worked at two shops prior where they, they would have had a multi-tiered waterfall, you know, so, okay, once you're at a eight, this happens. Once you get the 12 IRR, 15, you know, whereas super complicated. So I thought, let's do the same thing when I raise money. And I was talking to someone who's very smart and ran a real successful business, kind of like what you're talking about, was the same deal. It's like, that's so complicated. Why wouldn't we just do something as straight up split? And then there's not any incentive where you need to sell the property or something just to get your incentive. That was I had a similar experience. I mean, that's was a big takeaway for me. It sounds like for you, where for anybody kind of listening, it's you can, you know, it's up to just whatever you and your partner want to do, you and your investor, where there's yeah, not the right answer. There's no one size fits all. And as long as you can demonstrate value and you can demonstrate trust, confidence that you can be a good fiduciary of someone's money, then it is available. And, and then you set up a structure that worked for all of you, where it doesn't matter if so what these other people are doing this kind of structure. This worked better for you guys. And it was a huge success because you, the way you're talking about them, you still own the buildings now. So then having a simple structure allowed you to keep a lot of those buildings too. Yeah. And you guys oh, have made 100%. more money by keeping your chips on the table, so to speak. So everyone won with that idea of being simple. Yes. For sure. Spot on. Well, nice. Cool. I mean, I think that's kind of everything I wanted to touch on. I think let's, let's just wrap it there. Great job, Gabe. Thank you. So. And again, it's really an honor to be here and I, I love to continue the conversation and it's always you know, when you asked about, you know, how to get ideas and mentorship, and it's it's actually pretty cool. You and I are very similar, but you're someone yeah. I really respect and admire, and you've always been a great sounding board. And that's something I would say to people listening that are getting in the business. Find people you respect, admire, you look up to, ask them a lot of questions. And I, I've been told that you're usually the the average of the five people you're around most. And if you're around really smart, dynamic people, they tend to rub off on you. So, you know, I've really followed a lot out of your playbook and I again really honored to be here. Thanks for having me as a guest. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I've learned plenty from you about construction and different things and lending. So I can't wait to be on your podcast soon. So no, I'm just, just kidding. So how can the Rise and Invest listeners get in touch with you? I think one of the best ways to get in touch with me would be to look me up on, on LinkedIn. So it's Gabe Horstick. And then uh, you can also drop me an email at Gabe at base freeco.com spelled out b-a-s-c the number three and co.com thanks great. again for having me awesome i appreciate having you on i mean this i think this is a great episode a lot of a lot of great takeaways i mean for for me one thing that we both kind of did was just keep it simple and then get started i mean so that's my biggest yeah. takeaway from this so appreciate Absolutely. you being on thank you so awesome until next time thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode
Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.